starting a new series that I've titled uh, Relentless Love. What, what, what should be a pretty simple thing to talk about and pretty basic to understand, I'm going to warn you right up front, is going to be challenging and it's going to be difficult. It, it, it's not that people in general have difficulty with the idea that God loves us. So the difficulty won't be in principle, the difficulty will be in practice. Because when the idea of the relentless love of God comes in conflict with our experience in a difficult world, we're stuck in this place of, okay, if he loves, why then does he? When I talk about the idea of relentless love, I wanna first define what it means to relent. If God is relentless, if his love is relentless, we first have to understand what, he, what it means to relent. So the word relent means to become less severe, less intense, or to slacken. So if something relents, it's less severe, it's less intense, it kind of dies off. And that's why I've said that God's love is relentless. See, what I mean by that is that uh, relentless love is an unconditional devotion to another's highest good. That's what relentless love is. It's an unconditional devotion to another's highest good. And so when I talk about the relentless love of God, what I mean by that is his love doesn't lessen in intensity, it doesn't lessen or slacken, it doesn't come and go, it doesn't ebb and flow, it doesn't rise and fall. His love is relentless. So the big idea that we've got to understand and maybe keep repeating to ourselves throughout the moments of every day is that God has a relentless devotion to your highest good. That's the big idea. God has a relentless devotion to your highest good. Now, in principle, we would say, okay, I get that. That sounds good. I would love for that to be true. In practice, sometimes it feels differently. Here's, here's what we're going to have to get comfortable with. If anybody wants to follow Jesus, we have to get comfortable with the tension. The tension between what I know to be true in the Bible and the tension between what I experience. There's always, within Christianity, there's always a tension. There's always the yes, I understand, and the not yet, I don't get it. There's the tension between God's kingdom coming to earth and us praying that his kingdom will come. There's a tension between Jesus being present and evil being present. We're stuck in this tension. And, and unless we get comfortable in that tension, things will never make sense and we'll always struggle. And so there's a tension between the relentless love of God, that there's, there's a devotion to your highest good and the reality of life that you've experienced. Because sometimes it doesn't seem as though that an almighty God has a devotion to your highest good. Am I right? God's love doesn't have fluctuations. It doesn't ebb and flow like the tide. It doesn't rise and fall like the sun. 
Psalm 103 verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. That word abounding, to abound, means it's plenteous, means it's plentiful, means it is full of faith. God is full of faithful love. Now, in this tension between the idea that God is full of faithful love and devoted to our highest good and the tension of <laughs> sometimes it doesn't even seem like God's around. We have to understand that in God's devotion to our highest good may not look like our highest good. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, this is God talking. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. So what he's saying is, I'm devoted to your highest good, but what you think might be your highest good may not be your highest good because my thoughts are different than your thoughts. And that's the tension, right? That's the tension. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, God says. And we've got to get comfortable living in this tension. Okay, God, I know what you've said. This is my experience. Because some things that happen in our lives don't feel like God's love. Am I right? Go back in your past. You've got some things in your past that you've had to endure and experience that certainly did not feel as though God was loving you at the moment. Right? Sometimes, rather than God's love, it feels like God is mad. Sometimes it feels like God has forgotten. Sometimes it feels like God is absent. Right? This is the tension. It is key and crucial for us to remember that what God does somehow is motivated by his love. Somehow. The fact that we don't understand it doesn't mean that it isn't. Because his ways are higher. And God is under no obligation to explain his ways to us. The Bible says in Luke 11... Jesus is talking, and Jesus says this, which of you daddies, if your son or your daughter asks you for a fish, we give him a snake. I, I was on the verge of doing an object lesson this morning and having an aquarium with a blanket over it and having a, having a volunteer come to the platform and I would tell them I got a little bunny in a, in a, in a, in a, and in blindness reach in only to grab a boa constrictor. That'd have been funny. That'd have been funny. That'd have been funny. Y'all would have wet yourself and screamed and ran out of here. I, that would have been funny. But I decided rather than getting sued by someone for causing a heart attack, I would just explain it to you. You're welcome. He says, well, who are you parents? If your child asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your kid. How, 
How much more? Will a God who is a relentless devotion to your highest good give you what is truly indeed good? See, I, I was talking to I was talking to Shelly this week about this very thing. And I, I said, how do I explain this idea of being convinced of God's love when you're in the middle of hell? Uh, and, she, and she said, she said, you know, I, th I think you've got to be convinced of it before you get to hell. Before the walls come crumbling down. Uh, and you know, she's right. We've got to be convinced ahead of our need of God's love and relentless devotion to our highest good. Because here's what's going to happen. If we're not convinced of that on the front end, if we wait till we get in the middle of it to try to convince ourselves of it, we're going to run away from it. You understand? Like if we wait till we're in the middle and we feel the flames of hell, if we wait till everything's falling, if we wait till everything's to try to convince ourselves, oh, no, no, I know God loves me. We're going to walk away. We got to be convinced on the front end before we get to the pit. See, if you're not convinced of God's love, his relentless devotion to your highest good, when difficulty comes, when pain comes, when loneliness comes, you'll doubt God's love. And you'll start thinking you did something wrong. You'll start thinking, well, maybe God's mad at me. Maybe he's angry with me. You start thinking about all that stuff you did, and now you start thinking, well, now it's finally caught up to me. It's finally come back on me now. God finally got tired of being patient with me. He finally got tired of my constant, I'm sorry, God, and now it's all coming back. And... And what happened will start thinking that karma's outworked. I am amazed at how many people sit in church and say they know Jesus but still believe and live as if karma is in play. See, karma says this, you get what you give. It comes back around. It's, it's the opposite of grace. And karma is not biblical, but grace is. Karma says you get what you give. It comes back on you. Grace says, no, no, no. I've held back what you do. How many of us have not reaped all that we have sown? You understand? Now, y'all might reap some of what you've sown. I've reaped some of what I've sown. But praise be to God, I have not reaped all that I have sown, Right? Why? Because of God's love. And see, what happens is it makes church people, what happens is it makes religious people crazy and neurotic. Some of, there's probably not you, but you probably know some people who've been in church a long time and, and trying to follow Jesus a long time. Probably not you because you're probably super well balanced. But it makes some of those types of people neurotic and crazy. Because here's what happens. People, not you, but other people, work real hard to make God happy, hoping that maybe if they make God happy enough, he will love them more and be really good to them. 
and scared to death if they mess up real bad that maybe God won't love them as much or at least express his love to them very much and might actually cause bad things to happen. And what happens is those type of people end up being overly concerned with their performance and when they're concerned about their performance, they look down on everybody else's failures. The problem with that is they can't even keep up with their own performance and they end up withdrawing in their own failure from God and from church and from service and from Bible and from worship and from generosity. And then in their neurosis, they feel badly about who they have become and what they've done, and they work hard to perform well, hoping that God will see their good works and they're getting their life together and be even more pleased with them and do good to them and on their behalf. And then they do that. They start again looking down on other people's failures, and they can't keep up with their own standards of performance. Sound like anybody you know? And ultimately, this neurotic cycle of trying to be good enough so I will experience God's love so he'll be good to me and look down on everybody else's failures because they can't measure up to my performance and then feeling like I can't even measure up to my own performance so I feel really bad about myself and I withdraw from God then I come back to him to try to make sure that he knows how much I love him and how good I am. That whole thing is ultimately the result that we don't know and trust and understand the unrelentless love of God. That God truly does have a relentless devotion to your highest good regardless of your performance. In spite of your performance. See, when we're convinced of God's relentless devotion to our highest good, we will know that regardless of what goes on, our performance has nothing to do with God's love and commitment to us. Neither does then our failure have anything to do with God not loving us, nor being committed to us. Now I'm going to give you a glimpse of what's coming up in this series. I'm going to deal with it today. I'm just going to tell you this is one of the places we're headed. God is our model for expressing love. He, he, God's got to be our model. Because every other expression of love uh, is a mutation in the shadow of his expression of love. Matter of fact, the Bible says that we love because God first loved us. And so our, our, our model for expressing love is God. So I'm going to ask you in, in, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to ask you to begin with those that you know you love. Because you got some people in life you're not yet convinced that you, you know, that you love. You're not like, I'm still on the fence if I love you a whole bunch right now. I'm not sure. But there are some people that you know you love, right? You know you love them, right? You have some people like that in your life? So what I'm going to ask you to do is begin, like, get those people in mind. You know you love these people. And start thinking, what are the ways that I can show you that I have an unrelenting devotion to your highest good and joy? If God has an unrelenting devotion to our highest good, and he is our model, we need to start thinking about, especially those we love, what are ways that I can show you that I have an unrelenting devotion to your highest good and joy? I guarantee it'll change relationships. Not because it's magic, because it's a reflection of God's heart. Do you understand? So I don't want to talk about that today. We'll get to that later. It's important for us in this sense, in this time. It's important. Please hear me. It's crucial that we know Scripture so well 
that we're able to respond to the trials and the difficulties of life with biblical thought patterns. According to biblical truth, it's called a biblical worldview. It's so important that we're so intimately understanding scripture that we're able to respond to the difficulties and trials and flames of life according to a biblical worldview. See, here's what happens. If we're not convinced, if we don't know the truth of the Bible, we'll not be able to apply a biblical worldview in our lives when our wives need it most. One of the problems that I see with, our, with us is that so many people have a worldview shaped not by Bible, but by social media. That's a dangerous place to live. Uh, what I see so often, and it's not young people, old people, it's our cult, it's, our, it's, it's us. And our worldview is primarily shaped by social media. And so as a result, we have no idea what a biblical worldview is. And because we have no idea what a biblical worldview is, because we don't know the Bible, we have no hope to responding to life according to biblical truth. And when you don't have any hope of responding to life according to biblical truth, you will, in difficult times, start to question and doubt God's love. You understand? And the result will be, I guarantee you, this will be your result. Rather than thanking God for his relentless, everlasting love, you'll fall back into grumbling and grudges like the world. One of the most foundational biblical truths is the love of God. The relentless devotion to your highest good because of his relentless love. And unless you know the Bible, unless you understand the idea of God's love is only sentiment because it's not based on the unshakable foundation of the Holy Bible. So I want to introduce you to the love of God. All of that was set up an introduction for my message. So now I'm going to start preaching. You ready? <laughs> if you have a Bible and brought one with you, I want you to go to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. Now, let me do a little flip side peer pressure right now. This is my Bible. This is the one I've used for decades. I showed the church a couple weeks ago the one I had when I was in high school and used through college. This is the one I used when I got out of seminary. Uh, and, and it is well worn. And there's pages in here, there's chapters in here that are absolutely falling apart uh, and is beat up and worn out. Um, and there was a time uh, when I got away from this uh, and I turned on this. Uh, and there was a time when I probably spent more time on this than I did in this. And the results were terrible. And then when I still wanted to get back involved in this, I started to read this on this. Let me just tell you something. There's something profoundly powerful when you actually hold the book. 
There's something profoundly powerful when you actually have your Bible. And so I want to encourage you. I think the, the, the average house in America has like four Bibles in it. There's a lot of Bibles out there. If you don't have a Bible, you let us know. We'll get you one. Now, if your Bible this morning is on this, fantastic. Get it out, turn it on, get there. Psalm 136. But I want to encourage you. You're going to start seeing our high school students, you know, high kids carrying their Bibles. Y'all paid for them. Thank you very much for buying their Bibles for them. They're going to start carrying them around every Sunday. A little peer pressure. So we start carrying our books. So however you do it, do it. But I'm just encouraging you. Get back to this thing. There's something really profound when someone sees you carrying this around. You may be reading your Bible all day long on this. What's it going to look like? There's something profound when you start carrying this. So, uh, Psalm 136, let me introduce this to you. Psalm 136 is known as the great Hallel. Now, the word Hallel is a Hebrew word that means pray, to praise. There's a lot of Hallel's psalms in the Bible. There's a lot of them. But Psalm 136 is known as the great Hallel. The word Hallel is where we get the word Hallelujah. That means literally praise Yahweh. And tradition tells us that the Israelites sang this song, Psalm 136, during Passover and celebrations like Pentecost. And the Bible says that even Jesus himself, when he shared a meal with his disciples, that we commemorate with communion. When he sang, when he shared that meal with his disciples, the Bible says before he went out and then went to the Garden of Gethsemane and was betrayed into the hands of the men who would crucify him, that they sang a song. Matthew 26, 30 says, when they had sang a hymn, they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Tradition tells us it's very likely that what they actually sung is what we have as Psalm 136. This passage of scripture is important. And so I want to read this entire chapter and I want you to read it with me the way it was probably done eons ago where the leader would read the first passage and the congregation would respond. So your response will be in italicized, so you'll, you'll see where you're supposed to, when you're supposed to say it. Now, here's the deal. You're going to say, well, I'm going to give you a heads up warning now. I want to say it out loud with your mouths open. We're talking about the love of God right now. So for the love of God, the great Hillel, the passage that probably the disciples and Jesus himself sang before he went out and was betrayed into the very hands of the middle crew. This passage. Boy, there's a lot of history behind this. There's a lot of heritage of faith. The great Hillel about the love of God. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love you understand what your part is? Yes. To him who alone does great wonders. His love who by his understanding made the heavens. His love who spread out the earth upon the waters. His love who made the great lights. His love 
to the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, who brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the desert. To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his servant Israel. He remembered us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies. He gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. The great Hallel. His love endures. It's relentless. The foundational truth of all scripture, the foundational truth of all God's activity in the world, the relentless love of God. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. Give thanks. It is relentless. I know it doesn't feel like it all the time. I know that isn't your experience all the time. But the truth is that his love is unrelenting. This word love is a Hebrew word called hesed. It means a lot of things. One of the things it means is a love and kindness between people. It's a devotion from people towards God. And it's the love and mercy of God towards humanity. It means literally many things. Steadfast love, mercy, compassion, loving kindness, faithfulness, faithful love. His merciful, compassionate, faithful, steadfast love endures forever. So as a result of that, give thanks to God. His mercy and his love are relentless. One of the things that we learn from the great Hallel Verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 is that God's mercy and love have been relentless since the beginning. Since before time began, before humanity was on the earth, God's mercy and love was relentlessly shown in creation. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Forever, who made the great lights, his love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night, his love endures 
forever. By his understanding, because of his great love, he made the heavens, he made the earth, he made the planets, he made the solar system, he made the waters, he made the gravitational pulls, he made the tides, he made the seasons. It was God's wisdom out of his love that he created the world for the benefit of humanity that didn't even exist yet. As a forever example in view of his merciful love that endures forever. If the earth were two to three degrees closer to the sun, life as we know it would be impossible. His love endures from the beginning of time. If the earth were two or three degrees further away from the sun, life as we know it for humans would be impossible. His merciful love endures forever since the beginning of time. So finely tuned is the distance of the earth to the sun that the surface temperature on our earth is uniquely suitable for human life. It didn't happen by accident. There was no big bang. I cannot believe what some people say is truth about evolution. His love endures forever and is seen in creation. Consider the axis of rotation of the earth. The earth is tilted at 23 and a half degrees relative to the perpendicular of earth's planet of orbit uniquely suited for human life. If the tilt of the earth were any variance of a degree off of 23 and a half degrees, life would be unsustainable. Or consider the earth's atmosphere. His love endures forever. It's composed, the atmosphere of the earth is composed of four gases. The first is nitrogen, which is the most plentiful. 78% of the earth's atmosphere is nitrogen. And then there's oxygen, the second element. 21% of the atmosphere is made of oxygen. Then there's this weird gas called argon. Less than 1% of the atmosphere is argon. And the fourth gas of our atmosphere is carbon dioxide. Get this, 0.03% of our atmosphere is carbon dioxide. Now that's important because carbon is a re reactive gas and it's required by plants to live and it protects us from the radiation of the sun. Without the perfect amount of carbon, both in the atmosphere and continually being produced by the atmosphere, life would be impossible. And it's perfectly mixed and balanced at 0.03%. His love endures forever. Before humans were ever on the earth, before we ever had a problem, his love was enduring and relentless. God's creation is an example of his mercy and his grace. Romans 1 says his eternal qualities can be seen clearly by what has been made so that man and humanity is without excuse because his love endures forever. Before there was life on the planet, his merciful love was relentlessly shown. And the only response we have to that is to give thanks. The great Hillel goes all through redemptive history. God's mercy and love is relentless in both captivity and deliverance. And here's the problem. I know some of us, when we get into those places of captivity and slavery and constriction, we don't feel God's love. But the great Hillel of Psalm 136 reminds us that in both captivity and deliverance, God's love is relentless. Verses 10 through 15 of 136, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them. His love endures forever. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red His love endures forever. Here's the thing. Israel, 
The Hebrews were captive in Egypt for 400 plus years. I guarantee you sometime during that time span, they grew tired, they grew weary, they were suffering, and some of them died in captivity. The fact that that happened, did that mean that God's love was not enduring? No. Because his love endures. It's relentless. When they were in captivity, they were abused, they were mistreated, and it would have been easy to believe that God didn't love them anymore, right? You've been there too. So have I. After all, if God loved us, why would God allow you fill in the blank? See, it's tempting to believe that God loves me less when I'm trapped in my own sin. It's tempting to believe that God loves me less when things go bad. It's tempting to believe that God delivers me and rescues me because I've done things right. It's tempting to believe that God delivers me because I got my stuff together. But we must know that whether in our captivity or in our deliverance, God's love and mercy are relentless. Do you understand? Now listen. I got a lot more to say, so don't get tired yet. You can sleep later this afternoon. Don't check out on me yet. This stuff is too important. You're going to need sometime this week to be reminded that God has a relentless devotion to your highest good because his love is relentless. So hang with me for a little bit. There's one thing I know. There's one thing I'm convinced, for I am convinced. That neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, not the devil himself, neither the present nor the future, what I've done in the past, what I'm going to do tomorrow, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in our creation will be able to separate us from the relentless love of God that was shown to us in the person of Christ himself. And as a result of his relentless love, I will give thanks both in captivity and after I'm set free. For 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. For you want to know what God's will is? This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Why? Because his love is relentless. In captivity... His lovers relentless, give thanks. In deliverance, his lovers relentless, give thanks. God's mercy and love are relentless. Even when I wander and even when others attack me, even when I get stupid and even when others do me wrong, his love is relentless. The great Hallel. To him who led his people through the wilderness, his love endures forever. To him who struck down the great kings, his love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, his love endures forever. Og, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. And gave their land as inheritance, his love endures forever. And inheritance to his servant, his love endures forever. Here's what I know. It was because the Israelites didn't believe God. And it was because the Israelites grumbled and complained 
that what some say should have taken them 11 days to go from where they were in Egypt to the promise, 11 days because they grumbled, complained, doubted God, took them 40 years. Did it take them 40 years and have an entire generation die in the desert because God didn't love them? No. It was their own sin that caused their peril. And yet the Bible says God's love for them still endures forever. In your own sin, God's love for you endures forever. As they wandered, they were attacked. King Sihon and King Og, Numbers 21, you can read it on your own if you choose to. Moses is leading his people from, God's people from Egypt into the promised land, and they cut through, they want to cut through the land of the Amorites. King Sihon was the king of the Amorites, and Moses said, hey, will you let us pass through your land? We won't touch you, we won't bug you, we won't do nothing to you, we won't even drink your water. We bought a bunch of water ourselves. We don't need your water, we'll drink our own water. And King Sihon says, you step foot here, I will attack you, and then he did. Have you ever been attacked out of nowhere? You ever been attacked by someone you never saw it coming? Like all I did was wake up today. Where's this coming from? I just showed up to work and you got this like. When you're attacked and the enemy is against you, it's easy to think, God, where are you? Well, he's where he's always been. His love endures forever. King Og of Bashan. There's something about King Og I want to explain to you in this, the land of Bashan. Bashan was a beautiful countryside full of wild bulls. Full of wild bulls. That's important for us because of what we read in Psalm 22, verse 12. Psalm 22 is a, is a psalm that's written about Jesus. About what Jesus, about what the Messiah will experience. And in Psalm 22, verse 12, it says this. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Now get this. This is a prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus. And it says the strong bulls will encircle the innocent Messiah. The one who's done nothing wrong, the strong bulls of evil will encircle them. When Jesus was handed into the Romans who would crucify him, because of the hatred of the Jews. He was encircled by some would say upwards of 300 or 600 Roman soldiers. The strong bulls of Bashan. That even in those moments when no fault of your own, evil has conspired against you and the enemy encircles you to attack you and destroy you. Don't doubt nor question the love of God because his love endures for you forever. Tradition tells us that when Jesus was headed up to Golgotha, the place where he was crucified, after he had been beaten, as he carried his cross, that he sang this psalm to himself. Father, even in this, your love endures forever. I wonder what is our attitude? What is our worldview when abuse comes? What is our response when others hurt us? What is our reaction when others attack us? What is our response? It's so important to have a biblical worldview. Otherwise, your only recourse is to grumble and complain and hold a grudge and to post about it. 
And ultimately, you will doubt and forget the merciful, relentless love of God. We must know God's mercy and love are relentless. The great Hillel, he remembered us in our lowest state. Why? Because his love endures forever. He freed us from our enemies. Why? Because his love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. Why? Because his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Why? Because his love endures forever. God remembers you. God sees you. God frees you. God provides for you, not because you're good and not because you deserve it, but because his love endures forever. And our only response is to give thanks. Why? Because his mercy and his love are relentless. Do you understand? I'm going to give you one opportunity to engage with the relentless love of God through the great Hallel. I'm gonna give you one opportunity because we're gonna read and respond to the great Hallel, Psalm 136, together as a congregation. And I'm gonna ask you to stand up right now. Stand up right now. I'm not gonna ask you again. Stand up right now. Now look there, here's the deal. We're gonna go through Psalm 136. And I'm going to read the leader's portion, and you're going to respond in the congregation's proportion. And your response will be, his love endures forever. Now get this. If you've been convinced of his love, and you've given your life to him in faith through Jesus, this is your opportunity to proclaim with the generations that have gone before and all the angels in heaven above right now to proclaim the relentless love of God. But if you're not yet convinced, let the words of the relentless love of God ruminate and bubble in your heart as you hear God's people talk about and profess and proclaim in the midst of even bad stuff in our lives right now that yes indeed his love endures forever and so church with great vigor because we don't say this to ourselves we say it to God in heaven as proclamation of faith all you in TV land you do right where you are right now so I guarantee you, someone at their house is taking a nap right now, and they're going to wake up to his love endures forever. They're going to think, ah! <laughs> With great energy, the great hello. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. Who by his understanding made the heavens. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. Who made the great lights. The sun to govern the day. The moon and stars to govern the night. 
to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Say it like you mean it. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. Come on now, bring it home. 